Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Today, we're featuring excerpts from a fascinating archival interview from the City University of New York's Leon Levy Center for Biography. In April 2019, author David Blythe and history professor James Oakes sat down in front of a Levy Center audience for a lively discussion about Blythe's Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, published by Simon & Schuster in October 2018. Here's interviewer James Oakes. Let me start the conversation by pointing out, for those of you who don't know, that uh, David's first book was called Frederick Douglass' Civil War. And when I was doing my Frederick Douglass book, aside from the fact that there was no definitive biography I could rely on, there were two books that I really thought stood out. And one of them was by a guy named Dixon Preston on young Frederick Douglass, a journalist who dug up all sorts of things, like when Frederick Douglass was born. And the other was your first book. Mm. And the reason I thought your first book was so admirable. You kept it in print, I think. I only bought three people were teaching it. (laughs) Well, I'm glad if I did. Um, The reason I liked it so much is because it was admiring of Douglas, but it was also, I don't want to say warts and all, I would say flaws and all. Mm. And and this is the same way, this this biography. Uh, and, And so at the very beginning of your career, you were engaged with Frederick Douglass, and now, I don't want to say the end of your career, but at the, at the other end, toward the other end of your career. I'm going you're, fishing now. You're back to Frederick Douglass. Well, you're going to make enough money to go fishing, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and you should. You deserve it. Um, you've been with yeah. Frederick Douglass for a very long time. Yeah. And what has changed, if anything, over the years? What did writing this book hmm. change in the way you thought about Frederick. Yeah, well, thanks for that question. Thank you, Kai, for inviting me to do this. God, thank you all for coming. And I'll go anywhere to talk to Jim, whether it's in public or not, Um, maybe especially in not. But um, Jim is one of my favorite historians ever. I'll just get that out of the way. And the book on Douglas and Lincoln, still the the best treatment of, of the political ideologies of those two men. I did a dissertation that was on Douglas. It was this sort of small treatment of uh, the meaning of the Civil War in Douglas's life and thought. And it was essentially intellectual history, I thought, and by no means an attempt at biography in the full sense. I then did editions of his two, first two autobiographies over the years. I wrote essays on Douglas. I edited and put out an edition of the Columbian Orator, which is the the wonderful, to Douglas, magical book he discovered as a 12-year-old. Um, but I had Douglas completely out of my life until I encountered a private collection that made this book possible and necessary about 12 years ago. What's changed is so many things. 
and they have especially changed because of modern scholarship on Douglas. My dissertation came published as a book in 1989. Uh, Bill McFeely's biography of Douglas, I think, was 90 or 91. And then there have been this series of Douglas and Lincoln books. It, Douglas has been discovered, as you know, by political theorists. There are at least three books on Douglas as a political thinker. There are whole collections of essays on Douglas by law school professors who have literary, discovered. Literary. Lit, literary critics have been on Douglas ever since the 1970s. Um, and whole collections of those, too. So, you know, I, I learned so much more from all the other scholarship. But it was this new private collection of Douglas material. If, if you've cracked the book at all, you, you know about it because it's right in the preface. I went to Savannah, Georgia 12 years ago to give a talk on Douglas's narrative, his first autobiography. I've done this many times. And my host there, the Georgia Historical Society, said there's a local collector here. He'd like to meet and have lunch. And my reaction was something like, yeah, I guess so. And that day I met the amazing, incredible Walter Evans, an African-American retired surgeon who grew up in Savannah, segregated Savannah, went north for his higher education, Michigan Medical School, practiced in Detroit for 30 or 35 years. But his real passion for decades has been collecting African-American art, manuscripts, and rare books. And that day he took me over, and this changed everything. <laughs> he took me over to his house, uh, his beautiful four-story brownstone, and got out portions of his Douglas collection on his dining room table. So to the, to the question, what changed is that collection, the core of that collection, are about 10 very large Douglas family scrapbooks, which were kept by Douglas's sons over the last 30 to 35 years of their father's life uh, with devotion. It's thousands of newspaper clippings. It's quite a good collection of family letters and photographs and even all kinds of other family documents. But what it opened up was the older Douglas, the last third of Douglas's life, the post-Civil War Douglas. Not, you know, if Americans know Douglas at all, and even our students who come to us, have, many have already read the narrative, the first autobiography. They know the young Douglas, the heroic Douglas, the escaped slave who remakes himself, becomes a great orator, has some role in the Civil War. But that older Douglas, who seemingly becomes this patriarch and this bureaucrat and this insider, turns out took over the book for me in some ways because of that collection and because he is so fascinating in the last third of his life. Uh, it's a complex story of the old radical outsider, which is the theme you developed, who becomes this political insider or wants to be this political insider and does indeed become a government bureaucrat and grows into this role of spokesman of his race and everything that goes with that, which means the next generation of black leaders, almost all of whom are college educated, northern born, Unlike Mr. D, who was born a slave with no education, they want to knock him off. And that last third of his life becomes this complicated story 
of a, it's really quite a modern story in some ways. He's the prototype, really, of this phenomenon of the old radical who becomes an insider and then has to live with what that means, the kinds of compromises or deals and, uh, and of the sort that, that anyone like that makes. So uh, a lot of things changed for me because a whole lot of new sources were available. And also, you know, you just grow as a scholar. Right. I mean, I was, right. I was stupid when I wrote that first book. <laughs> well, I could see the first book in here. I mean, the, yeah, well, I, I rewrote those civil, chapters, but a lot of it's still there. It's true. Uh, but let's go through that arc of his life from, sure. from the radical outsider to the, to the political insider. What are the various stages for which he, he makes that transition? Sure. Well, he escapes from slavery when he's only 20. He's hardly fully formed as, as anything, orator or writer, but soon becomes this itinerant orator and takes the abolitionists circuit by storm with his, frankly, quite amazing storytelling about slavery. That first stage of his, of his public career is really the 1840s to the late 1840s. When he's a Garrisonian, he's a, a devoted follower of William Lloyd Garrison and moral suasion and anti-politics, which he overcomes. And the, you know, the idea that the, Garrison's idea, he towed the line for about six years that the Constitution was a covenant with the, with the devil and could not be used against slavery. And also Garrison's very, very stern pacifism, non-resistance. But Douglas grows enormously when he goes to England in 1845 to 47, about 18 months an amazing flowering for a young man who's only 27 and 28 years old. He's just out of slavery for nine years, eight years, and he's got this narrative in his hand, his 130-page autobiography that he can hardly keep in print. In fact, he has a new edition, two new editions published in Ireland, so he can keep the damn thing in print. And everywhere he goes, he's treated like the most exotic, fascinating character they've ever seen. They loved him in Ireland. They loved him even more in Scotland. God, they wrote poems and songs about him in Scotland. And in England, he meets everybody in the British reform world. And some of them raise the money to buy his own freedom. The Garrisonians are oh, very suspicious. Oh, very suspicious. And they're monitoring him, even spying on him. Garrison had uh, Maria Weston Chapman back in Boston. You know, hey, Every major reform movement in history has, at times, turned on itself. What do reformers do? They argue with each other. What does the Democratic Party do? It fights with itself. I mean, that's what ends up happening. Sometimes they're ideological schisms, and sometimes they're personality wars. This was a young, dynamic, black orator of enormous skill. And also now he's a writer, and he's just not to be controlled. And that doesn't mean that he was always on the higher ground about some of these things. Douglas was hypersensitive. If he thought somebody was monitoring him or suggesting he not say what he wants to say, he sometimes blistered them, and sometimes he got the wrong person and uh, made a lot of enemies. But anyway, he's, he's eager to grow out of this kind of almost straitjacket that the Garrisonians wanted him in, which... And that, that image is not always fair to the Garrisonians entirely, but 
You're pretty rough on them. Well, I am. <laughs> but when he comes back to the U.S. in 1847, he moves from Lynn, Massachusetts, the Boston area, out to western New York, Rochester, New York, known as a Quaker city, where a lot of Quakers lived there, and, and an anti-slavery city. And it was out at the terminus of the Erie Canal. It was a burgeoning, growing city. And hence safe, too. He chose it for safety for his family. But Douglas founds his own newspaper, the North Star, and he did it with money given to him by his British friends. In fact, without his British patrons, he and his family don't survive. His paper would never have survived. He wouldn't have been freed. He wouldn't have been freed. And he wouldn't return to the U.S. without, without the free paper in his hands. And now he's this... 28, 29, 30-year-old, full of the experience of being treated like an intellectual, like, like the most amazing thing they'd ever seen around, all over the British Isles, and experiencing very little racism, and some, but nothing like what he experienced here. And he comes back to the U.S., this very angry young man, denouncing the United States in sometimes vicious terms. In fact, Wendell Phillips, great abolitionist, took him aside one day and said, Fred, can you tone it down? I mean, come on, you're going to lose the audience. You've got to stop just attacking the United States. And Douglas said, no, I won't. I have no country, which became a refrain in his speeches. Stages, well, now he grows into, somewhat quickly, although it takes time, the political abolitionist that he becomes in the 1850s under the influence of new mentors like Garrett Smith, the great philanthropist abolitionist of upstate New York, Peterborough, New York. The Free Soilers. And, and the Free Soilers. He speaks at the 1848 Free Soil Convention. He joins the Liberty Party, which was anathema to the Garrisonians. You were supposed to not get in your hands dirty in politics because politics was inherently corrupt and so on and so forth. Douglas is learning now a kind of, it's one of the most interesting things about him. You dealt with this brilliantly. He's learning a kind of political pragmatism that's necessary to get anywhere in a republic. He hates it at times. He's got he's to now make compromises in his own mind with people he doesn't like. But he warms up to the politics of anti-slavery, and events make him do it. The Fugitive Slave Act, the Fugitive Slave Rescues. Kansas, Nebraska. Kansas, Nebraska Act. All, and, and, and all of these great issues from the Mexican War, Fugitive Slave Act, Kansas, Nebraska Act, Bleeding Kansas, all of these, and violence. Dred Scott. Dred Scott, for sure. In that segment of less than a decade, he's got his own newspaper now. It's a weekly. And he learns the short-form political editorial. Douglas was a great journalist. We don't always think of him that way. He wrote hundreds and hundreds of these blistering short-form editorials that became his kind of trademark. And if you go look up a list of Frederick Douglass quotations, some, many of them are from those editorials. Uh, and by the middle of the 1850s, he's now trying to figure out how to, how to shoulder up to the Republican Party. Here's this new party, this, this strange coalition now that's come into existence because of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the expansion question. They're not all you know, moral abolitionists. They're not radicals, all of them. But by God, there's now a political party that is putting tremendous pressure on slavery, on the slave system. 
and he can begin to see is really bothering the South. <laughs> the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And through the course of the 1850s, he has this roller coaster ride where he supports the Republicans in presidential election years, and then in off year elections, he goes back to the Radical Abolition Party or Garrett Smith and the Liberty Party, if it still exists. He, he gives his vote to radical abolition in the off years, but in presidential years, so far as we can tell, he goes Republican, although not always, you know, without his fingers on his nose. Um, but it's the, the radical learning, a pragmatic sense of politics, and learning that American political institutions themselves will have to be the place where slavery gets destroyed somehow, otherwise there's no alternative but violent revolution. And former slaves knew that slave insurrection was never a good idea, because all the dead people would be black people, you know. And then comes the Civil War, but we could take that up. The, I hadn't realized how deeply engaged in the secession crisis he was. He was yeah. so afraid oh, of yeah. another compromise. Oh, yeah. They compromised at the Constitution Convention. They compromised in 1820. They right. compromised again in 1850. He's he terrified. just assumed that's how it was so, going to end. And, and so he's like, yeah. no and, compromise, no compromise. Oh, and he's yeah. outside of power then. That's the outsider. Because, you know, when, when, when Lincoln gets elected, which Douglas supported, although it was a very disappointing election for him in one sense because he... He led the campaign in the state of New York to get rid of the $250 property requirement for black men to vote in the state of New York. He and James McCune Smith led that referendum. In fact, published a manifesto, but he campaigned all over New York. That went down by like 70%, even though Lincoln wins New York. Right. So he had to deal with, on the one hand, a lot of New Yorkers voted for Lincoln, but also voted against getting rid of the property requirement only for blacks, not for whites. It was disappointing. But he was glad Lincoln wins. However, when secession follows, it's on the one hand his fondest dream. Like, come on. Because D Douglas, not that he had any of this, you know, he wasn't the prophet who always predicted accurately. In fact, that's not what a prophet does. But he wanted some breakup, some kind of sanctioned conflict between North and South, between slavery and freedom. That was his fondest hope. He had no clear idea how it was to happen, but this election seemed to be making it happen. So he applauded secession. He kept saying, let the conflict come. We have waited too long. However, a mob attacked him in Faneuil Hall, in, or no, Tremont Temple in Boston in December of 1860, which was the first anniversary of the hanging of John Brown. I mean, a vicious mob attacked this abolitionist commemoration. Abolitionists were being blamed for the crisis of the Union. And he actually got scared. He thought, well, not scared, but he believed that this crisis now would somehow be compromised. And of course, there were all kinds of compromise efforts and attempts. There were any number of compromise ideas floated throughout the winter of secession. But he still didn't trust the Republican no. Party. And, he, and as a result, I think he pretty much consistently misread 
what Lincoln and the Republicans were yeah, up to. He either, yeah, I think you're right. He either misread or he just didn't know. Because yeah. he's, he's not inside any Republican yeah, circles right. yet. Right. He's, he's, not communi- he's out in Rochester, New York, publishing his newspaper. In fact, reading his newspaper through the secession crisis is fascinating. You see this fear, this joy and fear, joy and fear. Oh. So he continues that way pretty much right down through the, the war, through most of the war. He, well, he has these three meetings with Lincoln, but he goes up and down about Lincoln, right? And I, I get the well, sense... At least the first two years of the war. He, 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 well, he's, he's supporting Lincoln in 63 and 4. Although he goes up and down. He's, he go, yeah, he's still, still, still going up, up and down. down. I, I get the sense from your book, anyway, that the real turning point isn't so much the Emancipation Proclamation, though he's thrilled by it. Yeah. It's... The second meeting. Second meeting. The second, second meeting. meeting. Lincoln, D- Douglas meets with Lincoln three times, and this is the right. second meeting in August of '64. And he realizes right. how committed to the abolition of slavery Lincoln right. is. And then he goes and hears the second inaugural address, and, and he's he wishes blown he'd away. that speech for Lincoln, but he's thrilled that Lincoln wrote it. Right. That was the important because it was like it was had all the the religious symbolism. It was a Douglas of divine speech. retribution. The war oh. is divine retribution for slavery. That third paragraph of the second inaugural is not only the greatest paragraph in any presidential speech. It's Douglas's vision right. of the war. And from that point on, I think he's a Republican. Oh, no question. In fact, at that we meeting, have a different set of problems. Instead oh, of being the outsider, oh yeah, which has advantages and disadvantages, oh, now yeah. he's the committed Republican. Right. And in that 1864 election, well, first of all, at this August 1864 meeting, which Jim brought up, if you know your Civil War at all, you know this is during the horrible stalemate of the summer of 1864. Horrible stalemate in Virginia. Siege of Petersburg. Horrible stalemate around Atlanta and Georgia. Sherman's been trying to take Atlanta for weeks on end. Stalemates all over the place. Farragut hasn't yet taken Mobile Bay, the greatest naval battle of the war, and a huge turning point. Lincoln believes he may not be reelected. In fact, there's every reason to believe he would not be reelected. His own party was telling him to withdraw. His own party was saying this isn't going to happen. The Democrats are going to win, which means George McClellan, which we don't know for sure what would have happened, but the Democrats would have had probably some negotiated peace. No 13th Amendment. And no 13th Amendment. And the Republican Party by then is already on record supporting the 13th Amendment, which had passed one House of Congress back in the winter of 64, but not the other. And what do the Democrats do to the Republicans that year? Same thing that parties always do. They just stamped them on the head as the party of emancipation. And racial equality. And racial equality and used every N-word, nasty kind of, of, of illustration they could think of to portray right. the Republic. They called Lincoln Abraham Africanus I, claiming that he was really black, and on and on and on, and worse than that. Well, the first time Douglas met Lincoln at the White House, he just went and got in line and said, let me in. This time he's invited because Lincoln wanted First of all, I want to know Douglas's opinion of what he should do about this election. But most importantly, Lincoln looked Douglas in the eye and asked him to be the principal agent of a scheme that would funnel as many slaves out of the Upper South as possible before Election Day, in case Lincoln did not win re-election such that as many as possible would be behind Union lines and under some kind of legal freedom yeah. Yeah. if he gets defeated. And I'm convinced, Douglas sort of said this, but not as explicitly as 
I do. <laughs> I'm convinced he was stunned. Douglas. Douglas. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, he, and oh, he absolutely. basically said, sure. <laughs> he had no clue how he was supposed to do it. All he was told was, the War Department will organize it. Douglas goes home to Rochester, starts telegraphing and writing to various, all kinds of people. He had a whole group beginning to line up to be the agents of this system. And then he's, of course, saved by the fall of Atlanta, the fall of Mobile Bay, Sheridan's success in the Shenandoah Valley. And northern morale made a huge shift because of the success of the war. And then Douglas dearly wanted to campaign for Lincoln, and the Republicans wouldn't let him. Right. Because they're trying now to skirt around the emancipation issue as much as, don't want to have to talk about that as much. Seward, the Secretary of State, even said publicly, well, you know, maybe emancipation won't happen. It'll be settled in the courts, whatever that was supposed to mean. Douglas was angry that they wouldn't let him go on the stump. But when Lincoln was, was reelected, boy, did he go on the stump with uh, a couple of the most amazing speeches he ever gave, both in Rochester and then in Baltimore and many other places. Because then he, you, know, you could see the war is going to be prosecuted now to the destruction of slavery and whatever is to come. <laughs> By the time of the second inaugural, he and Lincoln are almost on the same script, which is, is an amazing change when you realize where they had been two and three years ago. <laughs> so the standard story about the Republican Party after Reconstruction is that, well, even before the end of Reconstruction, is losing its idealism about yeah. slavery and equal rights. Yeah. It's becoming the party of the bankers and the Gilded Age and right. the age of corruption. And... Douglas stays with it. He He's does. critical of where it's going, right. but he stays with it. And this is what creates yeah. so much problems for historians analyzing him. Right. Most historians don't like what Douglas no. did. You We'd and I are easier on him for that because it's a difficult, it's a difficult choice. But yeah, the Republican Party is the ship, all else is the sea. That was one of his lines about the Republican Party. He does, he's very critical of the Republicans by the 1880s into the early 90s. I think on the it's other the hand. Democrats. I Pardon think, me? I think he saw what the Democrats, oh, the, the alternative is the Democrats. And exactly. they're absolutely un And he called them pro-slavery. Absolutely horrible. He so said they're no different, this is a pro-slavery political party in the 1880s. And so long as that's the alternative. Exactly, it's, it's the two-party system we know so well. We don't need to go into that parallel, do we? <laughs> That's why we're all Democrats. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, where are we? Manhattan. I, I guess Manhattan. that's right. We're in right. It's a one-party state. Uh, but, but it is difficult, and he takes a lot of heat for it, especially from other black leaders, the younger black leaders who say, wait a minute, Mr. D, you're falling out of touch. These people don't care about us, at least after Reconstruction, well, even the end of Reconstruction. But he always, he campaigned out on the stump for every Republican presidential candidate from Grant to the end, from Grant through Harrison, his last. Uh, so from uh, 68 through 1892, and they would send him to certain states. Right. I mean, he was hired to do this. Right. And boy, was he a campaign stump speaker. There's even a cartoon I have in the book that shows Douglas 
It was in that magazine called Puck. It's just, it shows Douglas standing on a tree stump with his big white mane of hair, you know, waving to a crowd, stump speaking, um, in Indiana. Uh, Indiana was a swing state in the late 19th century. They always sent him there. I don't know why. But you know what he always argued? He kept demanding that the Republican Party remain what it had once been. Right. And it's, it's easy for us to forget, but, you know, a lot of Democrats old enough still want to see the Democratic Party as the New Deal Party or the Great Society Party. Uh, right. And now we're talking about Green New Deals and whatever. There, there's always a moment for every... I don't know what it is for the Republican Party. I guess it's Reagan for the Republican Party. They just want to be Reagan again, which is not a... In retrospect. retrospect. Um, But he he just want, and he kept demanding that they remember what they had done, that they were the party that reinvented the American Republic. Well, isn't that, that, this brings us to a different aspect of your book. You call it a biography of words or of his language and, and point out correctly that... He was, you know, a master of autobiography. Uh, he wrote a novel. He wrote speeches. He was an editor. And, and what we have is his words. And, and in some ways, that's the narrative shank of your book is let's, let's read him. Yeah. Let's see his words. And, it's and, hard not uh, to. It's, yeah, it's great. And, and the, master, the, the masterpiece of the speaking genre for you and for me, I suppose, is the 1852 yeah. You know, what to the American slave is the 4th of July speech. Right. And that, that's the same theme, yeah. isn't it? That you, he stayed with the Republican Party saying, go back to where you were. Yeah. Go back this to is, your creeds, right. the four and first that's principles what the, of the Declaration. And that's what the theme of the 1852 speech oh, yeah. is, isn't it? It's a Jeremiah, which means... Yeah, yeah it's the greatest you've Jeremiah American lost letters. touch with your origins. It goes one better than Jonathan Edwards, frankly. If you haven't read the 4th of July speech, you can pull it up on your computer and read it. It's a, it's a rhetorical masterpiece, but the context is interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's 1852. Uncle Tom's Cabin has just been published and has taken the world by storm. The Fugitive Slave Act is being resisted all over the North. He himself has participated in several rescues. You know, the politics of, anti, of slavery and anti-slavery now are just brewing everywhere. The political parties are tearing themselves apart. The Whig Party is almost dead. And he's asked to speak on the 4th of July by his friends in Rochester, in Corinthian Hall, 600 people. And there's a letter where he says that he worked on that speech for three weeks, which is probably longer than any other speech. By the way, if if you get into Douglas's words and his oratory, he wrote his speeches. This wasn't a man who just walked into halls and blew out the lights you know, with sermons off the top of his head. All of his major speeches are in text. All, in fact, several texts in some cases. And after the Civil War, they're in typescript, happily. But the Fourth of July speech is like a symphony in three movements. Uh, at least that's the way I argue it. I know symphonies mostly have four movements. I've been told that by musicians. I didn't know that yet, so... But he starts the speech by saying, oh, the 4th of July is this glorious day. The founding fathers were geniuses. Uh, He names some of them. Look what they created. He spends about six pages just warming up the audience. What a thing you have to celebrate. And then the pronoun you, you, your, you, you, your, just start raining down like hell. 
Pardon me, he says. Why have you invited me here to speak on your 4th of July? The 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. And, they, and he just tortures them with the you, you, your, you, you, your. And then the whole middle of the speech for 10 pages becomes this litany of the horror of the slave trade, of the domestic slave trade, of slave auctions, of the terror, of, of, of the humiliation of a, being a slave, vicious violence against slaves. It's just, it's like a hailstorm. And then with only a couple pages left, he just pauses after he does this Jonathan Edwards moment and he says, there's a reptile coil that your nation's heart Break away, break away, break away. You know, it's going to eat your heart out. It, slavery. And then he pauses. You can almost imagine him pausing at the lectern. And this is in, with an audience of his friends. And in the last couple of pages, he lets him back up. And he says, your creeds are fine. They're not only fine, they are the great enlightenment creeds. And your republic is still young and malleable. It's still possible for you to save yourselves. But you don't have much time left, which is the classic form of the Jeremiah. He does it all kinds of other times and with the same questions, the same issues. But it's him saying, look, this, this project, this experiment, this thing called America, it's got the right ideas. The practices are horrible and hypocritical and violating your own ideas. And slavery has to be crushed. And if it's not crushed by your will being changed, it probably will be crushed by far greater violence that we really don't want to see. Right. Um, and it's why he always, there was a, 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 a way that he hated colonization that was different from the way the Garrisonians did. Yeah, it was yeah, always, yeah. I am an American. Oh, I was born here. Nothing this animated him. Uh, he quite, hated the yeah. idea, the idea that oh. his birthplace was Africa or somewhere outside the States and he should go back yeah. somehow. No, it, 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 he not only so hated it, it, it made no sense to him. It made right. no historical sense to him. But you see that, that, that interesting radical critique yeah. coupled with this profound sense of identification. Yeah that makes him so different. It's That's why so I call him a radical patriot uh, in the end. Uh, but you're right about, and this is important, this, this idea of colonization, which really meant you know, racial removal. Old idea, it goes back to the, you know, the teens in the 19th century, and the Republicans revive it again uh, during the Civil War. The Lincoln administration revived, revived it. In fact, if you want to read outrage letter. I mean, he wrote a lot of these. Public outrage letter. It's in late 1862 when the Lincoln administration through its Secretary of the Interior, Montgomery Blair, tried to recruit Post Douglas. Postmaster General. Sorry? Postmaster General. Postmaster General. Sorry. See? You, this guy. <laughs> Not safe here. He yells everything. Postmaster General Montgomery Blair, whose job really it was to, to kind of manage uh, the right wing of race relations in the Lincoln White House, let's put it that way. Montgomery Blair tried to recruit Douglas to be their colonization czar, in effect, to, to, to run the whole system of removal of blacks voluntarily to Caribbean, to Central America, maybe West Africa, wherever possible. 
possibly as a means of convincing the country that emancipation has to happen, but nevertheless, Douglas told Montgomery Blair in so many amazing ways. That's sarcastic. What he, what he could do with and where he could put his idea <laughs> of, of colonization. But, but the arguments were, just as you said, our birthright is here. We are believers in the same creeds as you. We deserve the right to vote. We deserve the right to serve in the army. We deserve everything that an American, it was a citizenship argument and earned by the blood of slaves. He always fell back on earned by the, you know, the, the history of blacks country. is written like a trail of blood, right. earned right. by the blood of slaves. Right. And the Lincoln White House knew they need not ask him again to be their colonization czar. And he was glad, indeed, that Lincoln dropped it by the time of the Emancipation Proclamation. It's no longer there in the right. proclamation. Okay, so let me, uh, let me ask you a question about... Your, David is best known up until this book for a, an important book he wrote on called Race and Reunion about the so-called era of sectional reconciliation in the late 19th century. And it's sectional re reconciliation at a time that Stephen Woodward called the nadir of American race relations. It's the, it's the great era of Jim Crow, of disfranchisement, of, of lynching, right? And, and Northerners and Southerners are trying to reconcile, get past their past differences. And a big part of that is re-remembering the history of the Civil War, yeah. right? Rewriting the history of the Civil War to erase the issue, the troublesome issue of slavery, right. you know? And, and I was struck when I was reading your book about the problem all, all of us who write about Frederick Rose have, which is we, we have to deal with the fact that he wrote three autobiographies and we have to rely on them and then get over them because right. he's constantly <laughs> re-remembering the events oh, of yeah. his past. Yeah. I was curious about the degree to which yeah. your expertise in dealing with yeah. cultural re-remembering yeah. helped you in the process of dealing with biographical, autobiographical re-remembering. I love the question, Jim, but I'm not sure it did help me that much. I mean, I... In, in two different kinds of memory. Two different kinds of memory, uh, but individual and collective. However, in all the years of working on historical memory, I did come to realize memory is never to be trusted, <laughs> as we know every day, because I can't remember the name of whatever. Um, <laughs> where am I? He's doing great work. <laughs> I know. Well, actually, I have a T-shirt. He's running in 2020. I have a cap too. 20 Douglas 2020. If you, in case you you can buy them online. So anyway, but seriously, this is an extremely important question. First of all, Douglas's autobiographies, all 1,200 pages of them, are both your source and your problem. They are a source and a subject. Why does he keep writing his own story over and over? And even revises the third one yet a fourth time. It's like three and a half, yeah. Yeah. And the autobiographies are always there, right? In, they're always in the way. You got to get around them, through them, under them, over them. And you get out of the way, Frederick. And part of the problem there is, of course, that he wrote almost nothing about his, the private part of his life, except about his youth, his slave life. That, and it's why the narrative is such a classic and taught all over the world, because that was him trying, as such a young man, to remember a childhood, 
to recreate a childhood ravaged by slavery. And to, to, again, to get to your question, when I was writing the early chapters of the book, which are slave life, growing up a slave, which are so full of incredible use of metaphor and, and lyrical, beautiful writing, I at one point just went to the library, checked out about 20 books on child psychology and how we remember our youth. And I mean, I, I don't know how all that stuff helped me. But I read a whole bunch of stuff about how we remember childhood. I think I just got confused. But it did help me to realize, you know, everything about memory is through association. It has a great deal to do with emotion and trauma. And here's where the Dick Preston book is so important. This book called Young Frederick Douglass, done by this amazing, intrepid journalist in 1980 who went into the archives deeply of the eastern shore of Maryland and found out all kinds of details about Douglass's autobiographies to only to, to show that he didn't make much up in terms of names, places, dates, and the basics. Now, he's still a very creative writer, as any good autobiographer is. When he's writing about his youth, he can be very revealing, I think. But when he's writing about his public life, it's a story about an individual hero, me. And only other people who tend to get into that story are those others who support that ascendant story of the hero. And that's not surprising, is it? Memoirs are always, uh, memoirs are the most manipulative form of writing in some ways. I'm telling you the truth about my life. <laughs> um, now, However, having said that, I, I think Bondage and Freedom, the second autobiography, is yeah, like, that's his masterpiece I because agree. it's a much more political <clears throat> autobiography. This is when he's become the political abolitionist by 1855. You can see violence all over that book. Whoa. You can see him putting his politics out there on the, on the line. In fact, I love the last sentence of that book. I have a t-shirt with this quote on it, too. At the end of My Bondage and Freedom, after 430 pages, he says, as long as life allows me, no, as long as heaven allows me to do this work, I will do it with my voice, my pen, and my vote. Now, he'd have never put that word vote in there back in the first autobiography, because Garrison wouldn't have allowed him. Um, but he's now, the, he's now the voting abolitionist, so to speak. Right. Um, right. He is trying to control our... It's the same details. Story but, about him. Yeah, it's the same details because he's right. He gets the details right, but he refashions the oh, narrative yeah. within which he. And I think he changes a lot of things from you, one autobiography. You, you to the handle next. that very nicely as you go through. Covey fight in the narrative is like two two pages. Right. In bondage and freedom, it's thirteen pages. Right. That's it's a much. You know, it's and there are a lot of examples of that, and you have to stop and and you, all through, and you have to become a literary scholar on this. this and that's partly because of one of, the, one of the lessons of race and reunion is that writing history is always a political act. Yeah. It's not so much that you, don't, you shouldn't remember it, you shouldn't take it literally, it's that you should always understand that it's a product of the moment. Right? Oh, yeah. oh yeah. And that's the way you treat yeah. his various autobiographies, the products of the various moments. And just one other thought. You know, this idea of a biography of a man of words. At one point, I actually wanted to call the book Frederick Douglass' Biography of a Voice. Sounded cool. 
But my, my editor rightly, Bob Bender, my brilliant editor, rightly said, nope. <laughs> uh, it's uh, too literary is what he said. But he was right, you know, I didn't need to play that game. But, it, but we're here because of Douglas's words. Uh, spoken, written, and by the way, he was so proud that he became a writer. The former slave who could write. I mean, it just was the most, and I'm convinced of this. I mean, you spend this much time on somebody, as, as the Lincoln scholars do, you know, and, and it, some things you become convinced of and some things that, that are always elusive and you never can tell. Douglas was one of those people, like a lot of us, who didn't know exactly what he thought about something until he went to his desk and he wrote it down. Right. And when he was in a crisis, or there's a big event that's just happened, or the Emancipation Proclamation has been signed, or what, you name it, the Kansas Exodus, Reconstruction Acts, whatever the subject, he'd go to his desk, he'd write a new speech or editorial, and he'd take it on the road. And that's how we get these great speeches, which are almost always in response to the particular events moment. the particular and crises. Right, right. We're enough to stop at this point. But I want to thank David for this engaging conversation. That was Pulitzer Prize-winning author David Blythe, speaking with fellow author and City University of New York professor James Oakes. This interview was recorded in front of an audience in Cooney's Leon Levy Center for Biography on April 15, 2019. David Blythe's book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, was published by Simon & Schuster in October 2018. Thanks again to the Leon Levy Center and the featured authors for granting us permission to share this interview. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music, and until next time, Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day. Mm-hmm.